Good morning, faith family. I am so glad to be able to be here to worship with you today, as well as specifically to be able to lead us in our study of God's word together. Thank you so much for being here to worship with one another. If you're a guest, we are especially glad you were here. Welcome to the Church of Brook Hills. We are so glad that you've decided to join us for this, our last worship gathering of this year. And oh, what a year it has been. We don't need to get into all the reasons why, a variety of reasons of why this year has been a struggle, but hasn't it been so good over the past few weeks to have Christmas to look forward to in the midst of this year? All the the hope and the joy that is promised in that holiday. It's been good for us as a church to look forward to Christmas together as we've been doing in the Advent season, especially in this sermon series we've been studying together called The Gift. We've been looking at the story of that first Christmas from Luke's gospel, seeing how the Christmas story encourages us in our faith in Jesus, not just as a baby in a manger, but more specifically as our Lord and Savior. And we've seen how the Christmas story encourages us to have receptive faith, to have Godward faith, to have proclaiming faith. But obviously now Christmas is over. And so as we wrap up this series, we want to look to God's word again and to see what faith we are now called to after Christmas. And to do that, we're going to stick in Luke's writings, but we're going to jump to a different book. So if you would take out your Bibles or your device and open up your Bible app and navigate to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, know that the book of Acts is found in the New Testament. That's just the second major part of your Bible. It's the fifth book there in that New Testament after the four books that we call the Gospels that are all about the life of Christ. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. We'll be right there in the first chapter of Acts in just those first 11 verses. We'll even have these verses on the screen so you can follow along if you don't have a copy of God's word with you. But if you will, do follow along as I read Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? 
The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts here, we know from later in this book, was one of Paul's companions on some of his missionary journeys. Paul himself in the book of Colossians lets us know that Luke was actually a physician, a doctor. But from his writings, we also see that Luke was a historian. That's what he's trying to accomplish with his gospel and with the book of Acts, is to tell a history of Jesus' life on earth and then of the establishment of Jesus' church here on earth. But it's important to think about this as kind of one big story that's just been broken up into two parts, kind of like how they took, you know, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows and made it two movies, or they took The Hobbit, the shortest of Tolkien's books, and somehow expanded it into three movies. That's what's happened here. This is just one big story, one big narrative, one big history that's told in two parts. But it does have kind of a natural breaking point to it, because Luke's gospel, the book of Luke, it is all about Jesus's life in the flesh here on earth. But then here, the book of Acts, it is all about Jesus's life here on earth in his church. And so when Luke begins the book of Acts, he actually provides a little summary of the way that he ended his gospel, the gospel of Luke. He lets us know that after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he spent about 40 days coming and going among his disciples, continuing to teach them and to instruct them and to prepare them specifically for the time in which he would leave them and go to the right hand of the Father. Something that we call the ascension, when Jesus left earth and ascended into heaven. And so here at the beginning of Acts, he begins the second part of this story by just giving kind of a little twist on what he's already written at the end of Luke in Luke chapter 24. It's kind of like a little recap. That's something we're used to with television shows all the time. I I personally am a big West Wing fan. I don't know if there are any West Wing fans in the room today, but I love the West Wing. And at the beginning of most West Wing episodes, you'll hear a voiceover from a member of the cast that says, previously on the West Wing. And then you get a quick montage of clips from past shows that's reminding you of everything that's happened and setting you up for everything that's about to happen in that next episode. And that's a little bit like what Luke is doing here at the beginning of Acts. It's kind of like he's saying previously in the life of Christ. And then he's letting us know how the gospel of Luke ended, giving us a reminder because it's setting up everything else that's about to happen through the book of Acts. But before we look at this quick recap about the ascension of Christ and the instructions that he gave to his disciples, I want us to look at one more thing in the introduction here. And that's specifically who he writes this book to. It's written to a guy named Theophilus. And that's not just true about Acts, it's also true about Luke. In Luke chapter one, he addresses his gospel to Theophilus. Also actually calls him most honorable Theophilus. Chances are Theophilus was a real guy that this was written to. But Luke didn't intend for his gospel and for the book of Acts to only be read by one person. In fact, it's so fitting the name that Theophilus has. It's a Greek name. And it's actually a combination of two Greek words. The first one being theos, which means God, and the second one being phileo, which means love. So the name Theophilus could be understood as one who is loved by God or one who loves God. 
And that's completely appropriate for these books to be addressed to someone with that name. Because these books are written not just for one person, but for all those who are loved by God and have responded to that love by becoming ones who love God in return. To remind them of all the things that God has accomplished in their midst through Jesus Christ in the flesh and through Jesus Christ in his church. And so with that in mind, since that includes us, as ones who have experienced the love of God and have responded to his love by becoming ones who love him in return, I want us to see three big ideas from Luke's quick recap here at the beginning of Acts. Three big ideas that Jesus wanted his followers to grasp, which means there are three big ideas that he wants us to grasp as well. And the first one is this. We continue to wait. We continue to wait. In their final moments with the risen Lord, before he ascended into heaven, the disciples asked him one question. That question was this in verse six. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, when I first read this, I have to wonder, is this really the wisest question? Like out of everything they've seen Jesus do, out of everything they've heard Jesus teach, out of everything they've experienced in his death and in his resurrection in the 40 days since, the question they come up with has to do with the kingdom of Israel. But it's important for us to remind her that this is actually what the disciples had been waiting for the whole time, for the kingdom of Israel to be restored here on earth. It's not only what they had been waiting for the whole time, it's what any good Jew within Israel who understood the prophets had been waiting for the whole time, because that's what the prophets had promised. They had promised a Messiah, one whom God would send to restore the kingdom of Israel, to rescue his people and restore their kingdom. We can get just one example of that from the prophet Amos. At the end of his book, in chapter 9, starting, starting in verse 11, this is what Amos wrote. He said, in that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted. From the land that I have given them, the Lord your God has spoken." So this was a promise that they were waiting for and they were looking for. And so they asked Jesus here, here he is, the Messiah. They know him to be the son of God, the one that was promised that God has now sensed. He's in their midst. He's getting ready to leave. Surely he's about to restore the kingdom of Israel. Surely this is the time. Now, in his response, Jesus doesn't point out just how much they were missing the point. It's a recurring theme for the disciples throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels and up here through the beginning of Acts. If they don't quite get it exactly right, he didn't point out to them that the kingdom that he had come to build was a spiritual kingdom and not a physical one. He didn't point out to them how he had just spent 40 days giving them tons of instruction about the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel, since it was his kingdom, not a political kingdom. He didn't highlight how his kingdom was going to be for all peoples who were redeemed from their sins by grace through faith in him, and not just for one chosen ethnicity. No, that's not how Jesus responded to their question. Rather, what he said was this. 
He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. He didn't say, hey, that's not, that's not exactly how we're going to be building this kingdom here. He didn't correct anything. He just said, hey, not yet. Wait patiently. That's essentially what it is. It's not up to you to know the time. It's coming, but not yet, so wait patiently. And that is such a hard thing for us to hear. I mean, any of us who just celebrated Christmas with any children and anywhere in our proximity, we know how difficult this is. This is how Christmas was celebrated in my household growing up, is uh, whenever we would come downstairs on Christmas morning, there would be a bunch of presents unwrapped, set out around our living room. I was notorious for waking up extra early, even before my siblings, going downstairs and playing with everyone's toys just to check them out, and maybe even every now and then switching someone's toy from their pile to my pile. I've since repented of it, but that's how it would roll in my house. But soon after waking up and seeing those toys, we would then leave and we would go to my grandmother's house and we would meet all my aunts and uncles and cousins and everything. We'd walk in and at my grandmother's house, there was a tree and there were tons of presents, but they were all wrapped. We didn't know what they were. And as a kid, the only thing you want to do is unwrap those presents. You can't even get in the door before you're asking, is it time to open presents? It's now, do, I, do we get our presents yet? Is, is now the time? And the adults, are, you know, they're trying to get the meal ready and get all the snacks set out. And maybe we're going to read the Christmas story together, maybe sing some songs. And Grandad's going to pray. And, every, and as the kid, you're just going, no, no, please, we just got to get the presents. And the whole time I say, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Wait patiently, wait patiently. It is so hard for us to do. But that's the response that the disciples get to their question about restoring the kingdom of Israel. It's not up to you to know the time. Not yet, wait patiently. But that's not the only reason we continue waiting. Because see, after all, for us, we're living in the present reality of Jesus's kingdom building. We've seen how it's been established here on earth in his church and how it's continued to grow and to grow and to grow over the centuries. Now we continue to wait today because we live in a sort of second advent. We've been talking all this month about the first advent the first arrival of Christ here on earth. And the period of Advent was a period of waiting of about 400 years from when the prophets went silent until the Messiah finally arrived. And that's why every year we celebrate a season of Advent where we remember and we reflect upon that period of waiting as we also eagerly, expectantly, and longingly await the arrival of Christmas just as God's people awaited the arrival of the Messiah at that first Christmas. But we live in a sort of second Advent now because here in Acts 1, we have the Messiah and he's not coming, he is going. But in his going is a promise of his return. And so we are now waiting for him to come back. He has promised to go and to make a place for us. And he has promised to return, to take us home, to reign with him for eternity. This is what the angelic messengers are getting at in verse 11, when they say, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you've seen him going into heaven. He's going away, but he is coming back. This has been a difficult year for a variety of reasons. We have needed hope. 
We have needed joy. We have needed light. And we've seen that expressed very tangibly and that this year, Christmas decorations begin going up earlier than ever before. It was like April and people were like, forget it. We're putting our Christmas lights outside because we want them. That's what we want. And we're gonna start singing our songs in August and that tree's going up before Halloween. We don't care what anyone says because we want those tangible reminders of the hope and the joy and the light that was experienced about Christmas. But now, as we said, Christmas is done. The songs have been sung. The presents have been opened. That tree is dead and dying and we gotta find some place to go and dump it. But even though it's over today, we can look at each other and we can say, hey, only 363 more days till Christmas. And some of us love that. We get so excited about Christmas. We can't, like as soon as Christmas is over, we just start looking forward to the next one. That's what our waiting is right now is we are, we've just celebrated the first coming of Jesus Christ, but we are living in a second advent where we are longingly, eagerly, expect, expectantly looking forward to his second coming, not for the arrival of a holiday, but for the arrival of our Lord to take us home to reign with him forever and ever. Like the people of Israel in the time after the prophets, we continue to wait, but we no longer watch. This is the second big idea. We no longer watch. Look again at what Luke wrote about Jesus's ascension in verses 9 through 11. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The disciples watched Jesus rise towards the heavens. Once they could no longer see him, they continued to stand there watching where he had been. After everything that they had seen and they heard and heard, once Jesus ascended, they just stood there staring up into the sky. Well, what's so wrong with that? After all, most likely, this was no ordinary cloud. This was probably more like the cloud that descended onto Mount Sinai when the law was first given to Moses. It was a cloud in which it was contained the very glory of God. And so when the disciples are left standing there dumbfounded, staring up the sky, they are doing so in awesome worship. It's a natural response in seeing the glory of God displayed in his work. It's what we actually do each week when we gather together here for worship. Our worship gatherings are meant to give us a specific time to focus our gaze upon God, to behold his glory, and to respond in awesome praise of him. However, we're not meant to then stay gathered here together. And the disciples weren't meant to just keep watching the sky awaiting Jesus' return. Well, why not? Well, because it's too passive of a response. In my house, we watch a ton of animated movies. And one of those that we've seen is The Secret Life of Pets. It came out a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But it's about a Jack Russell Terrier named Max 
who has an owner named Katie. And Max and Katie love each other and they have a wonderful relationship. And the movie begins by Max talking about how great Katie is and how much he loves being with her. And there's only one bad thing about his life with Katie. And that's that every day Katie leaves and goes to work and leaves Max there in the apartment. And so what Max does every day is he sits her at the door and just says, oh, I miss her so much. I can't wait for her to go back. And he just stands there and waits. And we know that this is Max's plan because his friend Gidget, a Pomeranian that lives in the building across the way, shows up in the window. She says, hey, Max, you got any big plans for today? And Max says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I got some really big plans. My plans are to stay here and watch this door and wait for Katie to get home. But that is too passive of a response. That's not a response we are meant to have, though we are tempted to have. In the meantime, between Jesus' going and his coming, we're not meant to just watch and wait. Like Max staring at the door, we're not meant to just watch the sky waiting for those clouds to gather again for Jesus to return as he ascended. We're not meant to be passive. We're meant to be active. After all, he is still active. Look at what Luke wrote in verse one of this. He said, I wrote the first narrative Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do, but didn't stop. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was the end of a chapter, not the end of the story. Jesus continues to do and teach. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that story continued. It's the story of Jesus continuing to do and teach, only now he's doing it in and through his church. You see, Jesus actually has big plans. And they're not to stand there watching while we wait. He has big plans for us, all his followers. And what are those big plans? They are this. While we continue to wait, we no longer watch. And the third idea, instead, we witness. Instead, we witness. That's what Jesus tells his disciples and was probably the most well-known verse in all this passage. In verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These are literally the last words of Christ to his followers from his time on earth. To me, that must mean they're pretty important. It must mean that Jesus was pretty serious about them. But it's also interesting that Jesus doesn't give these words to his disciples in the form of a command. He doesn't say, go be my witnesses. He says, you will be my witnesses. He gives them to his disciples in the form of a promise. And we see this promise fulfilled throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 are all about them being witnesses in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11, all about them being witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Chapter 12 through the end is all about them being witnesses as they spread throughout the ends of the earth to all the parts of the known world. The witness of Jesus was the continued work of Jesus through his people. In Luke 24, at the end of his gospel, this is how Luke actually described these words that Jesus gave them. He writes that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. Jesus' call and promise to be his witnesses, it is not a burden for us to bear. It is a blessing that brings purpose and meaning and fulfillment to our lives. 
It is a blessing to be invited to join him in his work. And that's a blessing that we have, that we get to continue to experience today as we are also called to be his witnesses, just as those first followers were. It is a gift that we are given. It's what Pastor Matt was referring to last week when he said that all those who behold God's glory proclaim his gospel. We become storytellers, telling the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And it is not a difficult story to tell. It goes like this, that God, in the beginning, created all things, including people. And just as he formed the first man of the dust of the earth and the first woman from the rib of the first man, he has knit each of us together in our mother's wombs. But they and us alike have turned our backs on God. We have chosen to do things our way instead of his way. And so we have fallen into sin through our disobedience. But God loved us so much that he would not leave us in his sinful state. And instead, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to come to this earth to die in our place, paying the penalty for our sins. And then he raised him from the grave to show that he alone has power over sin and death and then calls all of us by grace through faith to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. And he not only has ascended to the right hand of the Father, but he has promised to come back one day and to take us home to be with him, to reign with him forever and ever. This is a blessing. It's a gift to carry this message of the gospel. But who do we carry this message to? Who do we witness to? Well, we witness first to our people, to our people. We see this idea contained in Jerusalem and Judea. This is the place where people are like us. They share our language, they share our culture. Another easy way to think about this might be that these are people are our neighbors. And we know that we're called to love our neighbors. And what's more loving than to witness to them about the saving power of Jesus Christ? Here at Brook Hills, we wear t-shirts that announce that Brook Hills loves Birmingham. We post on social media that what our country needs is just to turn back to Jesus Christ. And we're right, but our city isn't called to believe in Christ. And our country as an entity cannot repent. Only people can do those things. So are we fulfilling those things that we say by witnessing to our neighbors? To those people around us. At Brook Hills, we rightly emphasize our call to make disciples of all nations. We go, we send, we pray, we give for their sake. But there can be no passion for unreached nations without a passion for unreached neighbors. If you want to see them reached with the gospel, then begin by reaching people here with the gospel. But don't limit it to only people that are like you. Because we don't just witness to our people, we also witness to those people. To those people. We can define those people in a number of different ways. For the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea, those people lived in Samaria. They were Samaritans. They were the results of Jews of the northern kingdom who had left behind the law of Moses and had intermarried with pagan Gentiles. They had abandoned God's law. They did not worship 
at the temple. They were a hated people and the feeling was mutual. Now it's not very Christian of us to admit that we also have those people, but we do. Maybe we don't feel like we hate them, but we see them as very different from us, a little odd, maybe a little less. There's no way that I can define those people for all of us here today because for each and every one of us, those people is going to be a little different. But it's not right for us to have those people. It requires repentance, but repentance first requires admittance. And then it needs recompense. It needs us to make up for it. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus himself engaged and reached a Samaritan woman. We know that when he was questioned about who exactly is my neighbor, he told a story, a parable in which a Samaritan was the hero. And the implication was that everyone is our neighbor. Those people should be treated as our people. Our culture wants to build up walls between us, but we know from our study of Ephesians earlier this year that Jesus Christ himself has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between us. He wants to transform our hearts to make us into more loving people, loving people who love like he loves. The heart that is renewed by grace through faith in Jesus, it is an expansive heart. It opens in love, not just to our people, but to those people as well, welcoming and bringing them in so that there's no longer any difference. Judea and Samaria are together. They're just people. And then as that heart continues to expand, it becomes a worldwide heart. Because we not only witness to our people and to those people, we are called to witness to all people. To all people. Jesus uses geography to define the scope of his witness here. The city of Jerusalem, the regions of Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth as a symbol for all of the known world. But it wasn't places that Jesus was concerned with. It was people. Acts 1.8 reflects the heart of Matthew 28.19. Make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. And by the conclusion of Acts, Jesus' followers have witnessed to their known world. The gospel message has reached parts of Africa and Asia and Europe. It's gotten to Rome, the center of the known world. That leaves a question, well, what about the rest of the world that was unknown to them? And the answer is obviously, well, it wasn't unknown to Jesus That's why his mission continues. That's why he continues to call us to be his witnesses. That's why we continue to witness today to the Baloch, to the Hue, to the Somali, to the Emirati, to other peoples that we now know are also our neighbors. Jesus promised his followers, those first disciples and all of us, that we would be his witnesses to all people. And then that begs a question, are we? Do you witness to all people? That seems like a really big scope. So do you witness to anyone? R.C. Sprawl, the late theologian, said it so convictingly this way. He said, if you wonder why the first century church turned the world upside down and why we do not, it's because they preach the kingdom of God and we do not. 
there are a number of reasons why this might be true. But I think one of them is that too often we try to do it on our own, according to our own plans, by our own might. Or we are scared to do so because we think we have to do it on our own according to our own plans and our own might, and we think we might mess it up. But that's not how Jesus said it would happen when he promised that we would be his witnesses. He said that we would witness by the Spirit's power. He said that we would witness by the Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the very presence and power of God. And we see that he's essential in gospel proclamation because we see it being essential to Jesus' own gospel proclamation. His ministry does not begin until Luke 3, when he is baptized by John the Baptist and the Spirit descends upon him as a dove. In the beginning of chapter 4, where he is filled with the Spirit and led into the wilderness to be tempted, but given the strength needed to resist that temptation. When he is empowered by the Spirit to perform miracles that provide evidence of his gospel message. And we see how tightly he ties the essential role of the Spirit's power in his life for that gospel proclamation. When in Luke 4, he goes to Nazareth and he goes to the synagogue and they give him the scroll of the book of Isaiah and he reads from that scroll and tells them that it's been fulfilled in their midst. And this is part of what he read. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus knew how essential the spirit was to the accomplishment of his mission. And he knew how essential the spirit's power was going to be and the accomplishment of the mission he was then giving all of his followers. That's why in John 16, on the night before he died, he told them, it is better for you if I go away, because if I go away, I will ask the Father, and he will send you the Holy Spirit. And then chapter 4 in John 15, at the end of that chapter, he told them, when the Spirit comes, he will testify to me, he will witness to me, and you also will be witnesses of me. Witness is what the Spirit does. Yes, there is empowering and gifting for miracles and amazing ministry, but chiefly among the Spirit's role is to empower God's people for witness, for gospel proclamation. It happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit descends upon them just a few days after this as tongues of flame, and they begin to proclaim the gospel in many languages for many to hear. And then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, whenever we see miracles performed, they are most often performed in Jesus' name. But where we see the Spirit specifically mentioned has to do with leading God's people, his church, his followers, into where they need to go and empowering them for the proclamation of the gospel in those places. The Spirit gives us the power we need for our witness. We see that played out throughout the rest of this book. And so it shows us that essential for our witness today is the Spirit's power with us as well. Now, yes, as we've seen, Jesus calls us to receptive faith and he calls us to Godward faith and he calls us to proclaiming faith. But in order to proclaim, he also calls us to empowered faith after Christmas. It's not going to matter how many people we share the gospel with, how many places we go, how much we give, if we don't do those things in reliance upon the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is with us. 
So as we head into this new year, the question is this. Will we go with him to witness to the world?